It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so tell me this doesn't sound like a great premise for a movie. (laughs) About a century ago, a young woman from a small town in Indiana heads off to college to study poetry and philosophy. Now, she does this against her father's will, by the way. So she finishes college, travels to Chicago to figure out what to do with her life. Are you following so far? Mm -hmm. Because here's where the crazy plot twist comes in. She's about to give up, and then she's discovered and hired by this really eccentric tycoon, makes a major shift in her life and realizes she has this remarkable ability to break codes. What? She then goes on to become one of the greatest code breakers in history, helps the U.S. win World War One, helps us defeat the Nazis in World War Two, and plays a major role in building the foundation for the intelligence agencies in the USA today. Boom. What do you think about this? <laughs> I'd watch that movie. Yeah, and it should be a movie. But here's the thing. It's all true. And thanks to the years of research and writing by Jason Fagoni, we now have a brilliant book. It's called The Woman Who Smashed Codes, and it tells the story of Elizabeth Smith Friedman. I can't stop thinking about this story. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, obsessing over his new decoder ring, and what's he doing? He's, he's, it's like he's <laughs> communicating with us in some sort of new language of signals. He and, He's always so impressive, Mango. He really that's is. Our, uh, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, today we're talking about one of the most fascinating people history almost forgot. And honestly, might have forever had it not been for the book we're talking about today. I know. It's, it's just this incredible story. And when you started telling me about it, I'll be honest, I, I really didn't think it could be true. I, I mean, like this poet learning code breaking and then taking down Nazis and gangsters and cracking codes with pretty much this relative ease. Like, it just sounded too good. And especially since, you know, we've done a lot of stories and I've never really heard of Elizabeth Smith Friedman before. 
I know. It's it's honestly why I can't stop talking about this story. I know. You really haven't stopped talking about it for a while. Well, I'm thrilled we finally have the right person on the line to talk about this story, and that's the author of The Woman Who Smashed Codes, Jason Fagoni. So, Jason, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here. Well, I, I, Jason, I, I want to jump straight into this this really bizarre break that Elizabeth got, you know, becoming a code breaker. And of course, we want to ask you about how you even stumbled into this story. But first, can you set the scene a little bit and just talk about what her early life was like before she got this big break? Yeah. So it's one of these kind of classic American tales. You have a 100 years ago, a young woman in her early 20s is bored with her life and bored with her job. She lives in a small town. Uh, in Midwest, in rural Indiana, where she's from. She's teaching high school. And for a bright young woman in 1915, 1916, this is kind of the end of the line, right? There, there is not really um, a lot of opportunity beyond teaching school. Elizabeth was extremely intelligent, ambitious, and brave. And she decided in June 1916 to take a risk. She quit her job teaching school, and she moved to the big city, to Chicago, to look for something uh, more unusual. And that was really all she wanted, was something a little bit more unusual. That brought her to a library in Chicago, the Newberry Library, that happened to have a rare volume of Shakespeare from 1623. It was the Shakespeare First Folio. And she happened to love Shakespeare. She had studied Shakespeare in school. She was a poet by training, a literature scholar. And she just kind of wanted to see this rare book. She, she hadn't had any uh, luck finding a job in Chicago. She spent about a week, week and a half there looking for work, had no luck. She was about ready to go back home and move in with her parents uh, back in Indiana. But, but she made this one final stop at this library to see this uh, Shakespeare book. And she happened to have a chance meeting there with uh, an eccentric tycoon named George Fabian that, that ended up uh, transforming her life, but not just her life. Uh, it, it ended up changing the shape of the 20th century. And to, to be clear, like she hadn't studied any code breaking, right? Like she was um, more a liberal arts type. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. She was a she was a poet and a literature person. So and this is one of the surprising things about the story. And one of the things that pulled me in from the from the first day I began to read her letters is that I think we we kind of think of code breakers as mathematicians. We have this image of the code breaker as, as someone like Alan Turing, professional mathematician, math professor. Uh, but the fact is, code breakers often come from unusual places because the core thing about code breaking is it's really about seeing patterns. So code breaking is the science of solving a secret message without knowing the key. Um, it's akin to if you've ever solved a cryptogram in the in the puzzle page in the paper. Mm -hmm. um, Elizabeth was doing this at a sort of more sophisticated level than than most people, but it's the same principle. You 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 sort of take a, a block of letters that looks like gobbledygook. You chop them into their constituent parts, you whirl them around, count them and measure them and rearrange them into their original order. And um, Elizabeth was a genius at seeing patterns, even though she wasn't mathematically trained. She, she had a genius for seeing patterns. And that, uh, that's one of the things that made her one of the uh, one of the most important code breakers of her era. And before she was doing the, the code breaking that uh, obviously you know, changed the world in, in many ways. It was an interesting first project. I mean, can you talk a little bit about Fabian? Because he seemed like such a bizarre character and, the, and how this meeting came to be and, and, and what she was actually asked to do in, in her first assignment with him. So Elizabeth went to this library, the Newberry Library, to see this rare book of Shakespeare. And she 
uh, happened to fall into conversation with a librarian there who saw that she was interested in Shakespeare. And the librarian comes over and says, you know, it's funny, but there's this odd rich guy who keeps coming to the library looking at the same book of Shakespeare. He's convinced that there are secret messages embedded inside inside this book that have been planted there by the true author of Shakespeare's plays. He thinks that the true author is actually this guy uh, who is a contemporary of Shakespeare's named Francis Bacon. So the librarian is telling Elizabeth this, and, and the librarian says, uh, this rich guy, George Fabian, he says he's been looking for a research assistant. Would you be interested in something like that? And Elizabeth says, oh, sure, you know, may, maybe, possibly. The librarian makes a phone call to George Fabian. George Fabian ends up coming to the library immediately, <laughs> bringing, bringing his chauffeured limousine. He pulls up uh, in front of the Newberry Library in this limo, and he tumbles out of the limousine, and Elizabeth Smith looks at George Fabian for the first time. And what she sees is an enormous human being. He is six foot four, uh, 240 pounds, big iron gray beard. Uh, he, just, he just sort of stomps toward her. Uh, he has a big red face and he's sort of full of energy and intent and he's basically towering over her because Elizabeth is very petite. She's about five foot three and about 110 pounds. Um, and he looks at her and he says, uh, would you like to come to Riverbank and spend the night with me? <laughs> this is a bit, you know, this is a completely scandalous question. Wow. Uh, you know, Elizabeth's from this, from a fairly devout Quaker family and, and, um, and she doesn't know what to say to this. She doesn't know what Riverbank is. And so she, she kind of stammers her reply. And she says, well, sir, I don't have anything to, uh, to sleep in. I don't have any of my night clothes or my, uh, or, my, or my toiletries or anything like that. And he says, oh, don't mind that. We'll, we'll set you up with all of that. Come on. And, 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 and this guy, George Fabian, grabs her by the arm and sort of walks her out to his limousine <laughs> and, and, and takes her to the uh, Chicago and Northwestern train station. And from there, uh, she is brought to this place called Riverbank. And what Riverbank is, is uh, one of the most bizarre institutions in America at that time, 1916. So George Fabian, it turns out, is a uh, Chicago textile multimillionaire. He's made his fortune by selling uh, different kinds of cloth. And he has kind of a marketing genius for selling different kinds of cloth to department stores. Um, classic kind of self-made guy. He's a high school dropout. He's not educated. But he has a lot of money and he has kind of the ability in the Gilded Age to build a kingdom around himself and, and, to, and to kind of set the rules for everybody in his orbit. And um, it, he's a lot like someone like Andrew Carnegie or William Randolph Hearst, these, these guys of that era who just had more money than God. What distinguished George Fabian from those guys is that, you know, instead of spending his money on French Impressionist paintings or, you know, building a big castle, what really interested George Fabian was discovering the secrets of nature. He was really into science. He wanted to discover things about nature that had never been discovered. And so he turned his private estate, which was called Riverbank, into a kind of half rich man's fantasy land and half private scientific laboratory. Very much like Thomas Edison's Menlo Park, in New Jersey or Nikola Tesla's lab in, in New York. It was a place where, you know, a, a, a single uh, committed person with a lot of money had built a scientific laboratory and institution to investigate secrets of nature. And there was all kinds of experiments happening at Riverbank, too. There was uh, genetics experiments, agriculture experiments, acoustical experiments. And then there was this project that George Fabian wanted Elizabeth Smith to work on, which was the Bacon Cipher Project, the project of 
discovering these secret messages inside the works of Shakespeare, ripping them out and uh, translating them into the plain text and revealing the secrets of this Shakespeare book to the world. And that's that's what he told Elizabeth he wanted her to do <laughs> when he went that day when he met her in the library and whisked her off uh, on the train to Riverbank. He wanted her to help him discover the secrets that were embedded in Shakespeare and, and sort of sort of transform the history of English literature. It's just it's just unbelievable to think about. I think about the number of hours, Mango, that you and I spent just sitting in libraries hoping that some eccentric tycoon would come along and discover us and whisk <laughs> us away. And it just, it never happened, but it was, it's, it's fascinating to read about it, to, to think about our fantasy of that. But yet, so, so that project, that Shakespeare project didn't exactly go, you know, anywhere big from there, but, but, but can you tell us like, how did she end up making this transition from trying to figure out the code within Shakespeare and seeing if there was any truth to this to, what she eventually ended up doing in, in some of the very serious code breaking. Sure. That's a great question. So, so she's brought out to Riverbank knowing nothing about code breaking. She's immediately plunged into this project to find secret messages in Shakespeare and she can't find them. <laughs> and, and she's there for months and months and months and she's still having, having trouble, you know, discovering these secret messages. Ultimately she concludes that it's all a wild goose chase. It's all kind of a grand delusion. The secret messages aren't actually there. What's happening is that George Fabian and the people who believe what he believe are kind of seeing what they want to see. This is the thing about human beings is that we're, we're very good at, at seeing patterns. We're all kind of born to do it. And sometimes we're so good at seeing patterns that we end up seeing patterns that aren't really there, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and this is what was happening. They thought they saw these messages in the works of Shakespeare that weren't really there. Elizabeth had to figure this out. Um, but what that experience did is, you know, being dropped into this kind of delusion, it made her very interested in, well, if I wanted to find patterns that really were there, and if I wanted to be sure that they were there, how would I do that? How would I develop a method? How would I develop a system to make sure that I wasn't tricking myself? And so beginning in this kind of world of delusion, um, inspired her to try to create a true method and a true scientific system for discovering patterns in, in these blocks of gobbledygook. And that's what launched her on her code-breaking career, sort of in confluence with this other thing that happened, which is a year after she got to Riverbank, America entered World War I. So April 1917, you know, uh, America enters the war. And at that point... You know, it, it's amazing for me to go back and, and learn this history because, uh, you know, I had always kind of assumed that the American intelligence community that we that we know today that's mighty and powerful, the National Security Agency, the CIA, the FBI, I had always assumed that these institutions were always kind of always powerful and it had always existed. But, you know, in 1917, when America entered World War One, there really was no American intelligence community. There was no NSA. There was no CIA. And the FBI was very young. And one of the things that you need to do when you're going to war is, you know, you need to read the secret messages that the enemy is sending. You need to know what they're saying and what they're doing so that you can have an advantage. The thing is, you know, when America went to world, war in World War I in, in 1917, uh, it had no ability to do that. There were maybe five people in the entire United States who even knew what a code or a cipher was. 
And so uh, it just so happened that some of these five people were, were Elizabeth and her colleagues at Riverbank Laboratories, this bizarre private institution run by a crazy rich guy on, on the Illinois Prairie. It's one of these things, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. And Amer- American history is very, very weird. It gets very, very weird very, very fast when you get beyond the surface. So what happened is, you know, through the urgency of war, the necessity of war, you know, the, the War Department, the Army, realized they didn't have any code breakers and they needed code breakers very quickly. So uh, just out of desperation, they ended up kind of annexing Riverbank Laboratories, which became kind of the first national security agency. Uh, the War Department and other departments of the U.S. government began to send uh, secret messages that they couldn't read out to Riverbank. And Elizabeth and her colleagues there working for this crazy tycoon would solve the messages and send them back to Washington. And for the first eight months of World War One, um, Riverbank, Elizabeth and her colleagues there uh, handled the entire code breaking burden uh, for the U.S. government while it was at war, which is which is incredible to think about, because, you know, you got to realize Elizabeth is uh, 23, 24 years old at this time, and she has just learned about code breaking in the last year. But all of a sudden she was the expert and she had to perform. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. 
This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. We're chatting with Jason Fagoni, the author of The Woman Who Smashed Codes. So, Jason, that whole thing about... um that code breaking really wasn't a thing before is is just kind of stunning to me because I always think about like things in the paper like the cryptograms or or you think about like uh, Lewis Carroll and anagrams and people playing with words in in crazy ways but that this yeah. art isn't a thing is is just kind of amazing. She also wasn't alone in this endeavor, right? She she had a sort of a a, a love interest and partner during this time. Exactly. She met a young scientist there named William Friedman, and and again, it's one of these kind of classic American tales two young people from very different worlds. Elizabeth was, you know, a Quaker girl from the Midwest. William Friedman was a Jewish scientist from Pittsburgh. Um, He had been brought to Riverbank to perform genetics experiments. He was breeding fruit flies. Uh, He was trying to breed different varieties of corn and wheat that might take root in, in different kinds of soil. Uh, But the thing about William Friedman is that he, he had a talent for photography and a lot of the original work on the Bacon Cipher project, this, this project of finding secret messages in Shakespeare, depended on enlarging photographs of uh, the original Shakespeare manuscript, the 1623 first folio. So, so because William was good with a camera and he knew how to develop uh, prints in a darkroom, George Fabian uh, roped him into this project. And so uh, William Friedman began to work with Elizabeth Smith on the Shakespeare project and and they both kind of looked at each other around the same time and had this had this epiphany, which was um, everybody at this place is completely crazy except for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we are the we might be the only sane people here and we need to uh, we need to form a bond to kind of to protect ourselves from these lunatics. And while all of this craziness was swirling around them, Elizabeth and William did something extremely important, which is. Together, they invented uh, the modern science of cryptology, which today is at the core of our intelligence agencies. So this is a remarkable thing. You know, in the span of about two or three years, starting in 1917, they invented new techniques of code breaking um, that had not been known in America. They wrote papers together. Uh, They worked across from each other in the same room at the same desk solving puzzles with pencil and paper. you got to remember this is before the era of computers. This is all pencil and paper. You're just sitting there with pencil, hmm. paper, and your mind. And because so little was known about code breaking in America, um, they, they very quickly had to invent new techniques. They had to become scientists, and they had to become explorers, and they did that. Uh, and they were able to do it because they just had this, they had this bond, this link. You know, there's something kind of miraculous seemed to happen when they worked together. They made each other better. Um, and, and very quickly they started to consider themselves a, a duo and, and a team. 
Um, after they were married, William even even came up with a name. He called them he called them the Friedman combination. And you know, and it's interesting <laughs> because because uh, these papers that they wrote together are, are known as the Riverbank publications. And uh, uh, you know, they, they've historically been credited to William alone. You know, his, it's only his name that's on the papers. But I went back and I looked at the early drafts of these publications, which are in the New York Public Library. Uh, in their manuscripts and archives division. And when you look at the drafts, you see that Elizabeth's handwriting is all over them. In fact, you know, her, her, uh, her name is even typed on some of the typescripts as the author of certain sections of the papers. So I think that for several of the papers, uh, especially the early, the early papers, Elizabeth was uh, every bit the co-author. And in fact, uh, William considered her to be the co-author too. Uh, he, he referred to the papers as our papers. And uh, the thing that kind of seals the deal for me is that, you know, uh, in his personal archive, which is at a private library in Virginia, he has uh, he, he kept his own personal copies of the Riverbank publications. And on one of them, he actually writes Elizabeth's name uh, as a co-author on the cover, even though it's not there in the printed version. And so so she was uh, she was the co-founder, I think, of modern uh, American cryptology. Wow. And, you know, and you talk about that, that impact that they had. And, and I guess finally the War Department wakes up to the fact that maybe they need more than just five people at this weird estate in the middle of nowhere and, and decides to start their own code breaking units. But, but that doesn't mean the end of it for, for William and Elizabeth. Can you talk a little bit about what, you know, Elizabeth specifically was up to in between the world wars because she was still very much involved in this world? Sure. Right. So you're right. The, the War Department comes to the conclusion that maybe it's not the best idea to have a crazy uh, tycoon handling all of the code breaking burden for the United <laughs> States. Uh, they start they start to build code breaking teams and capacities in Washington. Uh, what happens is eventually uh, George Fabian sort of reveals his uh, insanity. He begins to spy on the Freedmen's while they're still at Riverbank. He surveils them. He intercepts their mail. He becomes very controlling. There's a suggestion that he uh, might have sexually harassed Elizabeth uh, while William was uh, serving in France uh, briefly during World War One. Uh, William comes back from the war. They both get out of there. They make their escape. Uh, they essentially pack up their things in the middle of the night because they're terrified of Fabian and they move to Washington, D.C. And this is where they spend the rest of their careers. And so um initially they're working in washington dc together starting in 1921 they both they both start working for the army and 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 at first they're working in the same room just like they were before uh designing new codes for the army new safer codes for for the use of the doughboys um pretty quickly elizabeth gets bored with that and uh she quits she she stays at home and starts to write children's books which was a long ambition of hers. she wanted to uh write a children's book about the history of the alphabet and show sort of the wonders of the alphabet and, and the system of, uh, of, of written communication to, to kids and young adults. And uh, she also had uh, gave birth to their first child around that time, Barbara, a daughter. And uh, so 1923, Elizabeth is kind of out of the game, right? She, she's at home. She's writing children's books. She's uh, recovering from uh, labor. And she is a mother. And this is kind of what she thinks she's going to do for the rest, rest of her life and her career. But what happens is that men from the government show up on her doorstep and ask her to solve puzzles for America. And this is, this is exactly, these are her words, by the way. This is how she put it. She, she, it was kind of a complaint all of her life. She said that men from the government keep showing up on my doorstep asking me to solve puzzles. And the only way, the only way to make them go away is to say yes and agree, and agree to do these projects. 
uh, the, the problem for Elizabeth is that she was just so good at what she did. Um, she, and she had such an unusual set of skills that she became indispensable. And so the government really could not afford to leave her alone. And so at, at every stage of her career, men from the government were showing up on her doorstep asking her to confront some kind of challenge for which they were unprepared. And, and the challenge in 1924, 1925, the first men from the government who showed up on her doorstep in D.C. were from the U.S. Treasury Department, specifically the U.S. Coast Guard. And they were asking Elizabeth to help them fight the war against organized crime uh, because of prohibition. What the Coast Guard needed to make any progress in, in this war against uh, uh, these rum runners was code breaking. And by the way, these, these were not gentlemen rum runners, right? The gentlemen rum runners, the guys, sort of the, the small time entrepreneurs with the boat. Yeah, they, they were out of the game by 1924. They were, they were uh, edged out. They were forced out by uh, organized crime by these mafias. And so, uh, so what the Coast Guard needed to make any progress was code breaking. They needed someone like Elizabeth to come in, uh, look at the intercepted radio messages, you know, solve them, and light up this darkened underworld to, so that the Coast Guard would be able to catch these boats and, and put these guys on trial. And that's exactly what she started to do. Starting in 1925, she became an expert in this discipline of radio intelligence, which is intercepting the radio messages, solving the codes, using the information to map the hidden network, the, the, the darkened underworld, to throw light on it. And then once she had solved the messages of these rum runners, a lot of the times she would be called to testify in court against them, which is incredible to think about because, you know, it's, it's this petite woman, five foot three, you know, walking to the front of a courtroom, you know, in a pink dress and a pink hat with a flower pinned to the brim. And she's sitting in the witness box, staring down, you know, in one case, more than 20 uh, agents of uh, an organized crime syndicate and explaining to a jury exactly what code breaking is and exactly how she solved this, these messages because she had to be able to convince a jury that it was real science, that the, the words that she was saying, the, the rum runners were saying were their actual words, that she really was kind of reading their thoughts and that there was a science to it. And so, uh, so Elizabeth became, for a brief time in the, in the early 1930s, a front-page story. Uh, and it was kind of an irresistible story for reporters because, uh, you know, they would they would describe her as sort of like uh, 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 a, a small woman in a pink dress who protects the United States or <laughs> or, uh, or, you know, a pretty little woman in, in, in a Philly pink dress. Um, and she and she would find herself on the front page all of a sudden and uh, testifying in these spectacular trials. Wow. Yeah, and I think you said at one point she was decoding up to, what, like 25,000 messages in a year? So not only was she good at this, but she was incredibly fast. Yes, it was uh, an astonishing volume of stuff. And and again, this is before computers, so so a lot of the job was just this kind of daily grind of, of cranking through paper. So, Jason, I want to get into uh, J. Edgar Hoover and how the FBI messed up so many things, and, and all that story is fascinating. But before that, can you tell us a little bit about how you found this story and how you reported it? Because it, it obviously has, uh, you know, a ton of work went into this incredible book. Sure. So uh, the genesis of the story was really the Edward Snowden uh, uh, leaks in 2013. So after the Snowden story broke, I, I started reading about the NSA, right? And I think um, uh, the history of the NSA, where did it come from? And like a lot of Americans, I think I, I didn't really know much about the NSA. And when you start reading about the history of the NSA, all roads lead to William Friedman, uh, Elizabeth's husband. He's considered to be the godfather of the NSA. 
that today, if you go to NSA headquarters in, in Fort Meade, uh, there's a, outside of the auditorium that is named for William is a bronze bust of his head. So William is like the guy, the guy with the NSA. Um, but I also read, I also read that he, that he had a wife who was a codebreaker herself. And I thought that was interesting, right? Like a husband and wife codebreaker. That's, that's kind of unusual. And I went looking for more information about Elizabeth, but, uh, there wasn't really much that I could find. And so one day I, I drove down from my, uh, from my house outside of Philly to the library in, uh, Lexington, Virginia, where the Freedmans left their personal papers before they died. And, um, William left, uh, you know, reams of stuff, boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes. Elizabeth left a smaller amount of material, but she still left, uh, 22 boxes full of, full of documents. And, um, I asked if I could see them. And so I started reading, reading her stuff, starting with box one, file one. And, and, you know, immediately when I started reading her letters, I was just, I was just taken with her voice, you know, on, on the page. A hundred years ago, re- reading reading her words in her own hand, and she's just so sort of funny, witty, warm. Sometimes sort of biting, sarcastic. She could be very savage on the page sometimes, <laughs> and um, and I was just captivated with with her voice. But uh, you know, the more I read in those twenty two boxes, the more I realized that um, you know, n- not only was this a story of uh, you know a remarkable woman. Um, who had an amazing kind of dramatic, kind of irresistibly, you know, cinematic career. I mean, a code-breaking Quaker poet who caught gangsters. It's 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 kind of irresistible, right? <laughs> but I, but I, I also realized that you know she was really a, hi- a hidden woman behind the birth and the growth of the intelligence uh, community in America because she really was present at the beginning of a lot of things that that today are very important. And so I thought it was, you know, it was both kind of like an, you know, an incredible just human story that hadn't been told. But I also thought it was it was important in, in terms of the bigger picture of American intelligence. The, the, the thing about the 22 boxes that I found uh, at the library that Elizabeth had left was uh, there was nothing in World War about World War Two in those boxes. So there was essentially a gap between 1939 and 1945. So uh, what she did during World War II, what I found in those records, is that um, she was hunting Nazi spies. So after Hitler invaded Poland, Nazi spies began spreading out into the Western Hemisphere. And uh, most of them set up shop in South America. South America was a good place for them to be because it was kind of upper grabs. It was neutral. Uh, and it was close to North America so it was a good listening post for uh, Nazi spies to gather intelligence about what America was doing and what Britain was doing. There were also a lot of uh, sort of right-wing movements in individual South American countries that kind of resembled fascism. So there was some natural sympathy for the fascist cause. There were also uh, millions of German colonists already living there. So the Nazis had kind of a natural advantage. It was fertile soil for Nazi spies to set up. And and what they did is when they when they went to South America, they started to build clandestine radio stations, pirate radio stations, and they would transmit their intelligence reports back to Berlin and Hamburg um, over the radio. And uh, it was the FBI's job, Jagger Hoover's job at that point, to try to stop these Nazi spies. Uh, the problem was uh, he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so um, 
there's a famous story. The FBI created a, a whole new division in 1940 to uh, try to go after Nazi spies in South America. Uh, it was called the SIS. And the first couple of uh, FBI agents who, who went to South America, they got off the plane and they were immediately spotted by the locals and, and made for FBI guys. You know, the, the locals, the locals looked at them and they, they looked like FBI guys they had seen in the movies. <laughs> they had the snap brim hats and the, you know, right. the, uh, you know, the square jaws and everything. And they were really pale. They didn't have tan. They didn't speak the languages. Um, you know, there's a story about one of the guys who had taken a language course in New York in, in preparation for his posting to South America. They, the FBI had taught him Spanish. And then he was posted to Brazil and he got off the plane in Brazil, you know, disappointed to discover that the, the language that's spoken in Brazil is mainly Portuguese and not Spanish. <laughs> so, so these guys were completely lost, right? The FBI, yeah, they were, really they were lost. Their game. Yeah, they were never, they were never going to be able to, to find these Nazi spies using kind of old school uh, FBI techniques of developing confidential informants and, and that sort of thing. What they really needed was code breaking, right? They needed a technical advantage. They needed to intercept these radio messages uh, solve the messages and light up the darkened underworld by by kind of stealing the thoughts uh, directly from the lips of the spies, um, but they couldn't do that because the FBI didn't have because the FBI didn't have a code breaking team. They had no code breaking capacity. They had no ability uh, to break codes and to read the messages of what these Nazi spies were saying. But Elizabeth Friedman did because you know she had spent the last fifteen years. Uh, kind of doing target practice against uh, rum runners and drug smugglers. She she had developed this expertise uh, at intercepting radio messages, solving them, and mapping these underworld networks because that had been her job uh, during the 20s and 30s to to fight smuggling. And so um, it wasn't that she set out to, to to hunt Nazi spies. It's just that she she happened to have the right set of skills at the right moment, you know. And and in 1940. Uh, she was ready to go. And so so what ended up happening is the FBI relied on Elizabeth and um, and the code breaking team that she had built within the Coast Guard uh, code breakers that she had trained. She had led um, relying on them to as, as kind of the technical back end of this of this hunt for Nazi spies in South America. Elizabeth and her team would monitor these clandestine radio circuits used by Nazi spies, solve the messages and provide the uh, translated English uh, plaintext to allied intelligence agencies, uh, including the Army, the Navy, the FBI, and also British intelligence. And by the end of the war, they had monitored about 50 different uh, clandestine radio circuits used by the Nazis, solved 4,000 messages. You know, these messages were uh, incredibly important in uh, ultimately destroying these Nazi spy rings in South America and eliminating a, a dangerous threat. You know, Elizabeth and, and her teammates uh, really brought these Nazi spies to ruin, picked, picked their uh, networks apart uh, piece by piece, destroyed them, you know, neutralized the threat. And then after the war, Jagger Hoover, you know, stuck up his hand and uh, went out to the public uh, on kind of a publicity campaign, taking credit for all of that. And he said, you know, America, the FBI saved you from this uh, dangerous Nazi spy invasion in South America and uh, you're welcome. <laughs> wow. and, and and that's kind of the story that has been told ever since is that is that the FBI did uh, did all of the hard, uh, dangerous, brave, uh, you know, uh, brilliant work of, of catching these Nazi spies in South America. But I think the truth is that the real driver was uh, Elizabeth Friedman. It was this it was this American mother of two who figured out how to sweep the Western Hemisphere, uh, free of undercover Nazis, and, uh, and yet she never got the credit for it because, uh, because Hoover got out there in front. 
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. We're chatting with Jason Fagoni, the author of The Woman Who Smashed Codes. Okay, Jason. So she, you know, helps through World War One. obviously decodes, you know, as you said, 25,000 messages a year in between the world wars at times and, and helped defeat the Nazis in World War Two. It's just an unbelievable story. And then you said after all of this, she and William kind of come back to the Shakespeare project later in their lives. And, and, and why was this? 
Yes. So after the war, uh, William was one of the people who helped form the National Security Agency, the, the, the team that he had uh, created and built at the Army, which during World War II achieved essentially the impossible by breaking the Japanese uh, diplomatic code, which was called Purple, which gave the Allies a huge advantage and probably shortened the war. Yeah, he did all these heroic things uh, during World War II. And then after the war, um, helped to create the NSA. His, his army unit was kind of absorbed into this thing that became the NSA. But uh, as the NSA kind of began to grow, um, it, it grew beyond what, uh, what he uh, felt like he could bear. Um, he became a critic internally of some of the NSA's policies and its, uh, its directions. He, he became concerned that, that too many documents were being classified. Um, he felt like the NSA was collecting too much information. He felt like they would never, never be able to sift all the information they were collecting for actionable intelligence. And, uh, and it really troubled him. And, uh, and, and throughout the 1950s, as the Cold War, uh, kind of sharpened in DC, the atmosphere of paranoia grew. Um, William became more and more despairing about his relationship with this organization and, and with the government more broadly that he, that he felt he had always served very loyal, loyally. And, um, you know, it, it, this kind of culminated in this famous, uh, famous day in, uh, 1958 when the NSA sent agents to the personal home of William and Elizabeth Friedman and removed documents and books from their, from their private library, uh, saying, saying that they were classified and, and needed, needed to be moved to a higher level of classification. The free, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the materials were, were, uh, so old that they dated back to the first world war. Uh, William was baffled, you know, uh, that, that, that the NSA would, uh, uh, would want to classify these things because they were so old and they're, they were really of only historical interest, he thought. But, um, you know, they, they found this to be, uh, kind of intolerable, uh, a, uh, you know, an invasion of their privacy. And, um, I think it motivated, uh, him and, and, and probably Elizabeth too to pull away from, uh, from government work more and more and back to personal projects. And so one of the personal projects that they could, could talk about, that they could work on, uh, in this atmosphere of kind of deepening paranoia, security and classification was something that had nothing to do with government code breaking at all. It's something that, something that went back to, uh, to their original kind of wild goose chase of their youth, uh, at right. Riverbank Laboratories. So, so in, in, you know, they, and what they did is they, they went back to this, uh, to this theory that George Fabian had always tried to get them to prove this theory that, that Francis Bacon had inserted secret messages in the works of Shakespeare and, uh, and they just demolished it. <laughs> they used all of their ability, all of their, uh, all of their kind of savagery on the page to, to sort of go through every piece of, piece of purported evidence for, for this theory and, uh, and just, and just destroy it <laughs> you know, yeah, page yeah. by page. And it is wonderful. And they wrote it together. Um, it's a very funny book. It's, it's, it's a very, uh, 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 sort of precise book. And, uh, and, and that was the thing that brought them back together, uh, working together after decades of, of kind of growing, growing apart because of their, uh, you know, increasingly important, uh, security duties for the United States. Wow. Well, I have to say, Jason, in, in reading this book, this is this is one of those history books that as you're reading it, you can almost see and feel the the blood, sweat and tears that went into this project. It's not only, 
beautifully written, but you can tell just all of the, uh, the, the intense amount of research that you've done to put into this book. And, and for that, I honestly, I just want to say thanks because it, it is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And I do hope our, our readers will check out the woman who smashed codes. It's a, an incredible story. So Elizabeth died in 1980 at the age of 88, mostly unacknowledged for her foundation laying cryptographic work. But, you know, you stumbled into her story and, and for that and, and all the work you put into this, I just want to say thanks. Oh, thank you guys. I, I, uh, I really appreciate your, um, I don't know. Your questions were great. It's clear that you paid a lot of, uh, paid a lot of attention to the book. And, and honestly, it was, um, it was, uh, a joy doing the research. It was, it was one of those projects that, Every journalist and every writer uh, hopes to stumble across, and uh, I feel lucky to have uh, to have gotten to do it. Welcome back to Part Time Genius. Now we've learned a ton today, but you know we can't wrap this thing up without a good old fashioned fact off. So you want to kick us off, Mango? Yeah, definitely. So I know Jason talked about this a little bit earlier, but I loved reading about how Elizabeth and William taught their kids the basics of cryptography, like as early as seven years old. So when their daughter Barbara was off at sleepaway camp, she'd send home letters in code and the Freedmans would use codes and ciphers in their um, Christmas cards. Oh, wow. And sometimes they even had cipher parties where their guests would have to solve the cipher just to figure out what would be served for dinner. Wow, that's pretty awesome. And actually, it's kind of neat to see this coming back in a way with like these breakout type places that people will go with their friends to play. Have you seen these or been yeah, to one the, of these those, before? Uh, exit the room thing. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I've never been to one, but mm. they seem pretty interesting. All right. Well, I know we've been talking about the woman who smashed codes, but there was another book published this fall that's more generally about women code breakers, and it's called Code Girls, the untold story of the American women code breakers of World War II. And it's by Liz Mundy. So I think I'll share just a couple of facts from that. And it, it does tell the story of the more than 10,000 college students and school teachers, among other women, who were recruited to really be the backbone of our intelligence efforts. But one of the things I thought was so interesting is that it was a huge, huge advantage for the Allied powers because unlike the Allied powers who put all of these women to work, the Axis powers didn't do the same. And there are estimates that it shortened the war by as many as two or three years. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So one of the more strange figures that Elizabeth took down was this woman known as Doll Lady, and she discovered the secret code hidden in the letters of this New York woman named uh, Velvely Dickinson, who was acting as this Japanese spy. It's an amazing story. So D Dickinson owned a doll shop and would send letters to an address in Buenos Aires, and she'd be talking about various dolls in her collection. But Elizabeth realized that her references to, like, English dolls and foreign dolls were actually a way to communicate about the Allies. And the doll lady was eventually sentenced to 10 years in prison and fined after being charged with espionage. She got that doll lady. Wow, what a strange character. I know. It, it just confirms my theories that adults who love dolls shouldn't be trusted. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good one, Mango. Maybe we'll do a whole episode on that <laughs> at some point. All right, well, back to Mundy's book. So she writes about how the branches of military were different from one another and, and who they allowed to be code breakers and who they didn't. So the Navy, for example, didn't allow non-whites. They didn't want Jewish women. They didn't want African-American women. The Army, on the other hand, did allow non-whites. However, not surprisingly, these groups were segregated. And it was really frustrating for Mundy as she was doing the research because there's no substantial records out there other than a few photos. And you can actually see these in Mundy's book. And, you know, it shows a room full of African-American code breakers, most of them being women. 
So as Jason explained to us, by the early 1920s, there were only three code-breaking units in the government and fewer than 50 employees. And about half of those employees worked for the State Department. And the Army and Navy had the other two. But in 1929, the Secretary of State decided to shut down the State Department's unit because, as he put it, quote, gentlemen do not read each other's mail. <laughs> wow, what a strange thing. All right, well, one of the other things Mundy shows in Code Girls is that unlike this common notion that there are all these big and exciting kind of aha moments in code breaking, it's actually much more similar to a marathon. And she does a great job of, of, of showing how they were working often around the clock, just looking for patterns and searching and searching. And it really was this marathon work that played a huge role in helping to shorten the war, as I mentioned earlier, because the Allies just had a much better idea of what the Japanese and Germans were planning to do each step along the way. Hmm. And I bet you want to carbo load before each stage of that Oh, marathon. definitely, definitely. <laughs> so I, I know we like to talk about the best job titles, so I had to tell you about uh, when Elizabeth was tapped to head up the Coast Guard's code-breaking team. Not only was she the first woman to run a U.S. government code-breaking unit, but she was also given a business card that said, Cryptanalyst in Charge. U.S. Coast Guard. <laughs> That's one of the best titles I've ever heard. I cannot beat that. So I'm, I'm going to give you today's fact off, Mango. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's it for today's show. A special thanks to Jocelyn Sears for her excellent research help with this episode. Now, if you want to share any of your favorite code-breaking facts, you can always email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call us on our 24-7 fact hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS. You can also hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to let us know if you'd like to come on to play a quiz with us sometime. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.